My name is Molly Nato, and I'm a first-year OT student at Kane University in New Jersey. Our guest today is Dr. Victor Michael Camacho, an OT with a focus on the population with limb loss and a background in acupuncture. He is also a professor at Kane University. Welcome, Dr. Camacho. And this is Dr. Robin Axelrod. On my drive to work one morning, I thought, how could I promote unity between OT and OTA students? How could I foster communication and leadership skills and promote our amazing profession? Welcome to my OT Journey podcast. Thank you for tuning into my OT Journey podcast. My name is Molly Nato, and I'm a first-year OT student at Kane University in New Jersey. Our guest today is Dr. Vic- Victor Michael Camacho, an OT with a focus on the population with limb loss and a background in acupuncture. He is also a professor at Kane University. Welcome, Dr. Camacho. Uh, hi, Molly. Thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. So, Dr. Camacho, something that's really unique to this podcast is that we really want to hear about your personal OT journey. So I'm actually going to start out by asking you a few questions about your childhood and kind of where it all started. So looking back, do you see any traits in yourself as a child or a teen that's really characteristic of an occupational therapist? Like, for instance, were you like a part of any activities growing up that were like medically related or similar to the OT profession in any way? Okay. Well, so I come, I come from a, um, an immigrant family. Uh, my, my mom and dad are both from Ecuador, and they immigrated to this country in uh, the late uh, 60s, 70s. So I, I have a lot. Uh, my own traits, I believe, are really rooted in sort of my upbring, upbringing. In addition to that was the culture I grew up in, uh, I grew up in Hoboken, New Jersey, one-mile square town, very diverse community, um, and very tight-knit uh, 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 community as well. Um, it was kind of one of these situations where everybody had had each other's back. So, um, so that that I think that the community I grew up in and sort of the the lessons that I learned from my parents were really important in kind of creating the person that I am today. Um, my mom is is trained as a nurse in Ecuador. Um, I would say probably the equivalent of an LPN. Uh, but those those two communities that I was part of, my smaller family community, and then the community uh, of of the town I grew up grew up in. Um, provided me with uh, certain values, you know, uh, justice. I am huge with justice. I believe that every person should be uh, provided with the equal, equal opportunity, uh, one versus the other individual. Dignity is the same thing. Um, that giving, altruism, equality, all of these are really, really rooted in and again, my family and the community I grew up in, um, I, I often, you know, being a father of second-generation Americans, I, I also make sure that my kids have these same tra- uh, traits. And um, when somebody uh, is different or has 
different uh, qualities. I make sure to tell my children to treat everybody equally with dignity and justice and kind of help out the the next person. Uh, so, you know, I when I when I drive around with my kids and I see somebody who is uh, possibly uh, an immigrant uh, and they have a child and they're walking with the child, I, I, I've often commented to my kids. I'm like, you know, you see see that that those those parents there and that child. I said that was me. That was me. So we can't forget. Um, we can't forget how where our roots are, basically. And the same thing when I go to my hometown and and I, sh- I share with them sort of local barbershop, the local pizzeria. Um, so to kind of loop back around, my mom being a nurse, um, it was always kind of the idea that I was going to go into the medical field and everything from like the toys I was that uh, my parents bought for me, little medical kits. And I, I knew that I was going to be in a profession where I I was able to offer myself um, for the bigger for a bigger cause and helping others. Absolutely, and honestly, Dr. Camacho, it's reminding me of the roots of occupational therapy so much, like this idea of how we started back in the day helping the soldiers with some mental health issues and this understanding that every single person has a right to a meaningful life, no matter who they are or what background they come from or anything like that. So I think that exactly what you just said definitely, definitely relates to the core values of occupational therapy. But that's interesting that maybe you're, is it right to say that like your mother's, um, medical profession kind of pointed you in that direction a little bit. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because it both my mother being in sort of a, being in that profession of, of of nursing and caring for others early on at the age of eighteen, um, and then my my father had this unique sense of of wanting to help out the 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 person next to him he uh, and i have to say that my older brother is exactly the same way you know what my and my two sisters are exactly the same way we will literally drop whatever's we're doing in the moment to go help the next person and both my parents but i can i can truly remember my father's you know dropping what he was doing in the moment to go help the next person um is something as simple as you know helping them with groceries or giving them a ride or um, yeah it it really and, and my my older brother's the same way it's um, he will he will stop in the middle of a highway and kind of get out of the car and help somebody if if their car is broken down so yeah it it, it is something that um, I think is really really rooted early on in your in your childhood um, and I I I have to say that individuals that follow this journey into becoming OTs, they they have they have to have that sense of of compassion for the for the for for the person uh, the persons around them, um, and that sort of leads them into this profession. I believe, um, in the last twenty five years that I've been in this profession, 
all the individuals that I've seen involved in this profession have have a similar story and a, and similar values of, of um, justice, dignity, uh, altruism, equality. Uh, I would say that sometimes um, it can it can kind of really get intense uh, when you see injustice occurring because you know you have to uh, kind of hold yourself back because you, you feel so passionate about it. Uh, you know, something as simple as you know um, somebody parking in uh, in a spot that's uh, designated for an individual that has a disability. Um, and uh you know you want you want to kind of fight the, fight that right and and say you know you're not supposed to park there that kind of stuff so sometimes yeah. <laughs> it can get tricky it, you know it can it get it can get tricky when you have uh, you're so passionate about these values that passion is so important though because i think that that contributes a lot to advocacy which is another huge, huge part of everything that OT is, you know? That's exactly what I was going to say, that instead of becoming the, you know, instead of becoming the person that always points out the the problems that occur, be the person that creates the solutions to the problems. So exactly what you said, that it, it gives great opportunities to be able to, advocate not only for a person but for a group and for a population so um, yeah that would be a big message that I would give to students in if you see something that kind of doesn't feel right doesn't look right um, you feel like you you have a solution that um, that would facilitate uh, an answer um, I would advocate for it um, yeah that's great thank you dr camacho it um it really sounds like your family and your community and what you learned growing up really instilled in you some values that are very very similar to the values of ot and i know your mom was a nurse so did you know about occupational therapy when you were like entering into college when did you find out about it and what led you to end up pursuing a degree in it Oh, so that so that's an interesting story. So, my mom being a nurse, it, it 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 honestly, the world was very simplistic. It was either you were nurse if you were female, and you were a doctor if you were male. So, there was really like no in between. Which, in it, in retrospect, it's like wow, you know, it, it's how how much we've expanded our 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 mindset. Uh, but my story basically high school kid uh growing up in an urban uh diverse school uh not not too many opportunities but again my my parents were dead set on me sort of getting higher education and getting a profession and and as i mentioned the profession seemed to be that it was going to be kind of going into medicine, becoming a doctor. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get it, uh, a scholarship from my high school, a minority scholarship. Um, a little bit back and forth, I ended up at Kane College. It wasn't a university at the time. And um, I was going through a pre-med type of program. I was taking biology classes and uh, 
17, 18 years old. It, it just, it seemed like it was okay. I was kind of lukewarm about it. My guidance counselor in high school had not introduced me to any other medical healthcare field besides nursing or doc or being a doctor. And um, my pre-med pre-med experience was kind of lukewarm. I was okay. I was taking some of the sciences. I wasn't really in love with it. And then two two moments in my life that have been, and I always feel like uh, there's there's a few few moments in my life that have sort of been huge and impacted uh, my course uh, of where I am right now. Um, but the first one was um, every freshman at King College had to uh, take a freshman seminar, something like that, and um, just happened to be that the sophomores and juniors that were in the freshman seminar to facilitate the program for the freshmen uh, were OT students in the program. And um, I'm so thankful that I had that encounter with, with uh, it was two individuals. And we got to talking, and they saw something in me. Again, probably the those values that we just mentioned. And they said, hey, Michael, um, you would be a good OT. <laughs> and I don't know if they were, you know, advocating for the profession at that moment or they really saw something in me, but um, – so they explained what OT was, and I was like, wow, okay, this sounds interesting. And they said, look, the best thing you could go do is go, go, do, go do some observations. Go find a place you can observe. So the second kind of impactful moment in my life was going to Kessler uh, Institute, a rehab center uh, here in West Orange, uh, uh, made very, uh, very uh, recognized is uh, where Christopher Reeves, Superman, and Pembereen, uh, Broadway, um, Broadway star, received their rehab, and many others have received rehab there. Um, very big in spinal cord rehab. And uh, I didn't know any of that at the time, but again, I was, I was 17 and a half, 17, and I went, and, uh, and I observed throughout the day, in individuals with spinal cord injuries and in wheelchairs completely paralyzed from the neck up. And uh, I uh, observed older adults with strokes. And uh, I remember one, one moment where I was watching a feeding group and um, there was an older adult that was having a hard time feeding and the OT was working on having them feed. And uh, this is a bit of an embarrassing uh, story here, but I remember grabbing the spoon and, and – uh, kind of making an airplane sound to feed the older adult and in retrospect obviously not not age appropriate uh, <laughs> you know it was it, it was coming from me you know wanting to sort of um, help out you know that altruism again uh, um, but from that moment on I, I just I really got addicted I really got addicted to that that sense of, of doing for others and helping others achieve goals. And uh, the one individual was completely uh, paralyzed, was learning how to control his wheelchair with his chin. Um, he actually was, he was like 19 and had, had a really severe injury uh, in a motorcycle. And, uh, and uh, he was like popping a wheelie at high speeds. And 
was eighteen, nineteen, uh, something like that. So he was similar, close to my age, and I, I just remember kind of saying to myself, "Wow, you know, a moment, a moment in time of, 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 of your life, and it, it's, it kind of defines, in that moment, you know, what you can do and not do, and then." There we are as OTs helping individuals kind of rewrite their stories. And it's a different story than I'm sure this young fella was planning to have, but it was still kind of rewriting the story and teaching them to be able to do for themselves. So anyway, um, I sort of went, went to my counselor at Kane College, my advisor, I would say, and, I, and her, her name was Sandy. And I said, Sandy, I said, I really want to get into this profession. This is what I, this is what I'm meant to do. Uh, and she said to me, Mike, you know, it's a very rewarding profession. It's competitive. Um, a lot of people are looking into it. I said, no, no, I'll do whatever it takes. And and uh, she helped me. She helped me, and uh, and I was thankfully able to get into the program. And uh, and I met some individuals. Uh, some faculty uh, and some uh, peers that really kind of uh, made the journey so much better uh, as I completed the, my my time in the program. Would you say that there were any specific professors or peers in that program, or maybe supervisors during your field work that were? especially, you know, supportive to you or, or mentored you in any way? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so um, Dr. Paula Kramer, um, one of the, the top 100 OTs uh, of the century, uh, she, she basically saw something in me that I don't think I even saw in myself at, now, now we're looking. I'm uh, probably like 19, and um, mm-hmm. I remember her one time saying to me something to the effect of, uh, "You know, don't get discouraged uh, about how other people kind of perceive you, because the OT profession is a is a diverse, inclusive profession, and you are you." Because I was kind of a little down on myself that I was, you know. A, a kid from you know urban community, uh, uh, first generation. Maybe he didn't kind of express myself exactly the way that others did, and maybe I felt a little bit like an outsider. And she kind of gave me a pep talk and said, "Hey, look, I'm a girl from Queens. I'm not exactly kind of I don't fit the mold exactly. And, but that's the beauty about OT that you don't have to fit the mold because." Um, we're all unique, and that's kind of what we promote. So she was very special, and, and she still is, and um, she's encouraged me along the way to do great things, even go into higher education. So definitely her. Uh, there have been some other individuals throughout my career. We could get into those. Uh, but an, another faculty member, uh, Dr. Lynn Richards, she's in Miami, she gave me a little taste of like um, kind of a little bit of reality check. So as Dr. Kramer was kind of the, the nurturing, 
I'm not going to say that Dr. Lynn Richards wasn't nurturing, but she was kind of like, all right, you know, uh, here's, here's the cold facts. You, you have to get the material down. And uh, sometimes the feedback on papers and assignments wasn't the greatest, but it wasn't negative. It was just kind of like, okay, you know, you, you need to go back and do the work. And, uh, and nobody likes criticism or, feed, or constructive feedback or uh, letting them know that you uh, have to improve. But that's sort of the journey that I'm in right now, that without getting that feedback, that specific feedback from individuals, you can't grow as a person as a, and as a professional. So um, I would say those two individuals in, uh, in, in the faculty at, at Kane, you know, during my early stages of education to become an OT. There have been other individuals throughout my career uh, that also have been. But my early years, absolutely, those two faculty members. Mm-hmm. So that was during your time at Kane University. So that advice probably translated really well for when you went off to your field works of this idea of, you know, don't get too down on yourself, like be confident, like you can do this, but then also the ability to take feedback and constructive criticism from your supervisors and the people around you. So can you tell me a little bit about like, your fieldwork experiences when you were at Kane and where you did them and, you know, some good experiences, some bad experiences, some challenges, that kind of a thing? Sure, sure. So uh, I ended up, like, I really, so now I'm in my uh, 20s uh, getting ready to do my fieldworks. Fieldwork, my fieldwork level ones were done within the, Pediatric was done within uh, the King College campus. My uh, physical rehab was done at Kessel West Orange uh, um, for my fieldwork level one. And then my mental health was done at, at Greystone. Uh, uh, I can't remember the, the location, but here in New Jersey. Um, mm-hmm. So those were, those were okay. Uh, but when when I decided to explore where I would do my, my fieldwork level twos, I decided, again, very tight-knit family and community. Oh, I really, really kind of was insulated, um, which was good, as we mentioned, but I, I needed to spread my wings a little bit. I needed to kind of see what the outside world was all about. And um, I commuted to school. Um, you know, the one-mile-squared town was kind of my bubble, uh, whenever we went on vacations, the whole family went on vacations. But I really hadn't ex- explored. So I, something in me said, you know what, I want to sort of take this opportunity. So my mental health uh, field work was going to be in San Diego, and that, that got canceled. But my uh, physical rehab field work was in uh, uh, Fort Myers on uh, – yeah, Fort Myers, Lee Memorial Hospital in Fort Myers. Um, and that was such a, an eye-opening experience. It was first time, like I said, I had been away from home, so I was quite a bit homesick. Uh, it was the first time I sort of lived on my own, cooked for myself, did my laundry on my own. Um, I ruined a bunch of clothes 
you know, a lot of pink pink t-shirts, oh, uh, no. a lot uh, a, a lot of rice. My mom sent me uh, away with uh, a rice cooker so I could make rice and canned beans, kind of what I lived on. And um, I got an opportunity, my first little taste of uh, uh, interacting with the students from other professions. So I, my roomie was a physical therapist. Uh, some of uh, our neighbors were nurses and and uh, physical therapists as well and uh i i was it was in another state uh and i made friends i made friends with some of the uh people that i worked with ot's and and pt's um but again that the the support that i had both in my family and with the school was not necessarily the case when I went to my field works. Uh, so it, it, if I'm being frank, and, and this is where sort of any time I've, I've had an opportunity to be a field work educator, I've sort of taken the lessons of how, I, how my field work educator was and sort of, sort of imp- tried to improve on how she was because my field work educator was uh, in retrospect, wasn't really committed to uh, being a fieldwork educator, I believe, at the time. Um, maybe, you know, she didn't have the experience. Like, i got to give her the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but she wasn't really involved and, com- and committed to sort of spending the time with me. So I remember her getting there early, giving me sort of the brief uh, – brief summary of what we were going to do for the day and then leaving exactly at 3.30, when the day ended at 3.30. And one time I remember going down to the fitness center and seeing her work out at the fitness center at 3.30 and, and she, she was just kind of rushing out to go work out and and not spend time with me going over sort of the day and the notes. And so mm-hmm. I took that lesson. I said, you know what, I'm never going to be that work educator I'm always going to be the person that's available and uh, and and fully commit to being a field work educator and, and the time that it needs to help somebody grow and 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 be be the best clinician that they can be for the people that they're going to serve right and for the profession that I, I sort of represent and they're going to represent uh, so that was a challenge um, with that said other people that weren't my field work educators stepped up to the plate in the OT and they they were you know they gave me the sort of the structure and the feedback that I needed and one of the skills that again any student that I sort of encounter both in the clinic and now in the academia is like you need to know how to take blood pressures and monitor vitals really carefully and when I went um, it, it wasn't it wasn't something that I had sort of even attempted to become proficient in. I had, had done blood pressure and monitoring heart rates, but I wasn't good at it. I wasn't really good at it. And I vividly remember an OT kind of pulling me off the side and saying, look, you need to take blood pressures on everybody that you come across until you feel good at, about doing this, until you feel competent. Um, and that was a big turning point for me. Um, and then I also remember getting feedback about, it's really interesting, uh, 
because I feel like I could, I connect with mostly I connect with mostly everybody. I would say everybody, but the feedback that I got one time, which was interesting, that when I worked with uh, uh, minority communities, the uh, the one OT could see how I like shined. And it maybe it was my comfort zone. So when I worked with individuals from urban communities or uh, African-American or Hispanic or Asian, or um, she saw kind of how I got into my comfort zone. But when I worked with individuals that weren't familiar and didn't probably come from my little microcosm of my community is kind of when I stutter-stepped a little bit, uh, which, is, which is interesting because um, – I like I said, I feel like now I uh, very few pockets of of individuals and cultures. I would I would say probably like a a younger population. Probably it doesn't come smoothly to me. Like you know, birth to eighteen or something like that. Uh, <laughs> just because most <laughs> of my experience has been been in adult rehab. But yeah, so that was a growing experience working in. Uh, in Florida in a rehab center and gaining my skills, not having, you know, being, being away from the community that, that I knew, my family, the Kane community, uh, meeting people, being on my own, uh, realizing sort of my limitations but kind of pushing through them with the help of, a, of some uh, accidental mentors, I guess, at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, I made it back to Jersey. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it definitely, it sounds like it was an experience where it was super uncomfortable at the time, but you ended up growing a lot through it. Oh, absolutely. So you were obviously a fieldwork student, but you also mentioned that you've been a fieldwork educator. So... I guess my question to you that's very applicable for this, you know, type of a podcast kind of geared towards students is what makes a successful fieldwork student? What, you know, you've had quite a few. What has made, what have they done to make you impressed? I think, oh, it's not a, I would say not, not about making me impressed, <laughs> but it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's about taking, um, accountability for their own growth i think i think this lesson can be applied to many aspects of individuals lives something i remind myself often but if you spend too much time blaming others for what you're not learning then you don't take accountability for your own learning so uh, the most successful uh students I've ever had were the individuals that, you know, found opportunities uh, for their own learning, did the extra work that was involved behind the scenes, um, came up with ideas that were outside of the box, and and respectfully were able to have a conversation uh, that was not necessarily in agreement with their fieldwork educator. And I stress respectfully because 
there could be a situation where there could be negativity and conflict um, with a fieldwork educator and a student. Um, but I think there's also opportunities where a student can help a fieldwork educator grow by thinking outside of what the fieldwork field work educator's experiences are. So, so the, the students that have really shined and helped themselves grow, and I would say helped me grow as well, have been those students that sort of bring their own insight into the context of the field work that we're in in the moment. Uh, so I would say accountability, um, initiation, and being able to kind of share, so having that confidence to share their own viewpoint of a situation, I would say it makes for a really strong field work experience. Uh, if you're going to go and just kind of be a, a quiet bystander in your own experience, you're not going to get much of it. Uh, I will say that when I reflect when I reflect back in the 24 and a half years of you know what let's say 20 22 years of having students um, first couple of years I didn't have students but I, I transitioned from being sort of more of a, a situation that when I had a student I imparted everything I knew to the student uh, like an apprenticeship, and I, and I felt that that was enough, that what I knew was enough to sort of send that student off to be a professional, to probably midway between, probably 10 years into taking on my first student, I transitioned into, rather than it being sort of an apprenticeship, apprenticeship and imparting everything I knew, having the student experience what I know, but also expand on what I know and, and put their own spin on, on what my experiences were. Um, and, I, and I think that helped them grow, me grow, and, and, the prof and I, I believe the profession grow by sort of combining those ideas. So, so what did that look like practically? So a, a, a great example is I, I had a student who uh, came in and needed to work on a project, uh, needed to work on their final project for, for their fieldwork experience. Uh, not, uh, not, for the pro, not for the academic program, but for their fieldwork specifically. They needed to come up with a quote-unquote project. I didn't, I didn't want them to make anything to leave for the hospital. That's some of the problem. I didn't want them to come up with a bi instructional binder. Uh, I really want them, I wanted them to think, to sort of bring fresh eyes into a situation. And I said to the OT student, um, I said to her, look, I'm, I'm working with individuals with limb loss. They're learning new things. They're learning how to use a wheelchair for the first time. 
uh, if they haven't used a wheelchair. They're learning how to transfer uh, in a different way. They're, they're learning how to get dressed in a different way. So this requires sort of a consideration of the mental functions of an individual. Specifically, how do they learn uh, and what specific client factors beyond just learning, but is it a, a situation with memory? Is it a, a situation with uh, planning, uh, with um, sequencing, with organization? Uh, is it more than that? Is it attention? Is, uh, so I, um, I asked the student to look at the situation. So to look at it beyond sort of practicing skills of getting dressed and getting out of bed and transferring and uh, managing their residual limb in preparation for, uh, for a prosthesis, but to really look at the mental functions. And that OT student took it, and, and, and we were able to kind of really uh, look at it from fresh eyes. She was able to get a sense of, you know, we need to first evaluate a person's ability to learn so is it somebody that is needs more structured learning? Um, uh, is it somebody that we have to break down activities and maybe go towards something like an errorless learning type of situation where we're consistently teaching them very similar skills and not letting them make errors? Or was it a situation where we just had to find a specific learning style that worked best for that individual? but then they could use their own metacognition and have reflective learning where they would sort of build on from one session to the other. So we had to define the person, right, and look at a person as an individual instead of like a cookie-cutter approach of looking at everybody and training everybody exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. That led us to looking at the individuals that that had the capability to learn, but we just had a uh, constructed a little differently into the Cobes learning theory and looking at the individual's best learning style. And it's very commonly used for students in, in academia, uh, you know, how do they learn best. And we, we started to look at that and we started to look at uh, research and summary of knowledge um, and also what other mediums would be available to Let's say teach a person how to transfer using a uh, a lot uh, using a, a transfer board. So we determined that you know some individuals might need to observe another person or watch a video. Some other individuals might need handwritten step by step instructions if that's the best way they learned. Other individuals needed to kind of practice over and over. That's kind of what I was referring to uh, summary of knowledge. Um, and uh, and have them do more tactile learning. So we really uh, kind of took an opportunity to break down the activity and the person's ability to learn and kind of find the best way to get the outcomes that we wanted, that a person could safely transfer, could safely manage and, and utilize a wheelchair, that they could manage their skin uh, uh, after skin... Um, manage the skin on the residual limb in preparation for for a prosthesis, that they can learn how to use and, and, and don a prosthesis, which seems very simple, but 
there's so many there's so many steps there's so many things that an individual has to organize and sequence and and sort of have flexibility so where they can problem solve a situation let's say do they need enough socks uh, do they do they have too many socks do they have little socks uh, not enough socks do they have too many socks or do they have not enough socks uh, when do they apply the appropriate socks is is the pin on the on the silicone sleeve with the pin and the pin suspension is it appropriately positioned to lock in if it's not locking in locking in what is what is the concern um, so so many aspects of putting on a prosthesis but the mechanics of, of, of putting on the prosthesis was one thing but the person's ability to sort of learn all the steps how could we make that better and uh, and we were successful we we really were able to sort of redefine I believe redefine what we were currently doing for individuals with limb loss and how we were training them and moving away from more of a cookie cutter approach of teaching people how to transfer and manage their wheelchairs and put it put on a prosthesis uh, and really kind of look at it more customized to them uh, that led us to being able to present at the uh, a poster uh, with learning styles for specifically for older adults in uh, San Diego so that was I think that was 2010 maybe maybe <laughs> if I'm recall 2012 maybe uh, don't call me on that I have to go back and look at that and then that led us to uh, to write something up in OT practice it was 2012 because 2014 was when it was published in OT practice so yeah that's just that's one example of where an OT could come in OT student could come in with fresh eyes and look at a situation and she benefited from it I benefited from it the program benefited benefited from it when we presented at the national conference the OT community benefited from it and then when we published an OT practice a larger community of the OT OT community benefited from it benefited from it mm -hmm. and yeah it it definitely sounded like such an OT project like I think a lot of professions would just hand individuals a pamphlet saying you know this is how you don a prosthesis and but it's the OT that realizes that there are so many other factors that go into something like that especially the person's learning style since it does get so complicated mm -hmm. sometimes so dr. Camacho I know I mentioned at the very beginning you know that you a large part of your career was with this population with limb loss so can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved with this population because I think a lot of students uh, ears probably perked up when they heard this <laughs> <laughs> so I was I was working so we're going back so if, if we use uh, uh, full-time in the clinic we go 24 and a half years we go back 18 years of those 24 years and I was I was tasked so I was working as a uh, I would say a generalist OT I had experience in spinal cord and, and brain injury and stroke and orthopedics and 
adult rehab. And um, I think it was it was a, a bit of a change in society, or maybe a more of an awareness of of the rehab center. But we were tasked um, myself and three other physical therapists who are my best friends even now to put together a, a team that would work with individuals with limb loss. And um, I got to say that at the time, I didn't really kind of look at the demographics, but in retrospect, um, times were changing, uh, uh, increase, increase uh, incidence of people with uh, diabetes and vascular disease. We were close to an acute care hospital uh, that we work closely with, with uh, people then sending individuals for rehabilitation to us. And again, uh, I wasn't really kind of looking at the bigger picture back then, but it seemed like there was a need. So they they had us put together this team of four of us, three PTs and myself. And um, and I it, it was it was demanding because for every eval that a PT did, and they could split it between the three of them, I had to do the vows. So three vows one day, I did all three vows, they did one. So it was challenging. Um, and I went, up, I, went, I went about doing the best OT that I knew and, uh, and working with individuals on rehabilitating them, uh, helping them to compensate, improving their transfers and dressing. Um, much of the prosthetic training, I wasn't really involved in it was it was mainly individuals with limb loss, low, uh, low extremity limb loss, and it was because of uh, comorbidities, which is what they refer to as non-traumatic amputations versus traumatic. Traumatic because of a car accident or a work-related injury, uh, those kind of things, and uh, often upper extremity involved. Uh, so th- these individuals were low extremity, required rehab, single, double, uh, transfemoral, transtibial, or below the knee, above the knee, um, often because of diabetes, vascular disease. Not to say that they weren't individuals with traumatic amputations because of the car accidents, but so these were the individuals, and um, I did my rehab for them, uh, training them how to use their wheelchairs and, and transfer and um, uh, uh, helped, helped with the PT sort of carry over wound care and inspection, skin inspection, and managing their pain, but I quickly started to notice um, the, the psychosocial aspect of these individuals with limb loss, um, and I started to see that one right after the other individual that I was working with had, concern, had issues with emotional regulation, adjusting to losing their limb, and I was like, wait, what? Why aren't we talking more about this? And kind of the the generic answer was like, oh, they need psychology. Have them go to psychology. But I was, you know, and I, I have to say that my three PT partners were also kind of very altruistic as well. But um, I was kind of listening to them and kind of listening to their stories and um, Go, having them go through their stages of, of, of coping after loss, and in this particular case, it wasn't the loss of a person, but loss of their limb, um, and understanding that that there was a grieving period that was going on here, and that affected sort of 
their occupational engagement and their ability to um, to learn and perform activities and and along with the uh, the psychosocial aspect, as I said, I was kind of very curious about what was going on with their mental functions and cognition and 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 really looking at all the bottoms, right? All the sort of we we talk about top to bottom and looking at all the bottom aspects of a person's ability to engage, participate, and perform occupations. I was also looking at um, their their social network and and how supportive it was, and how the caregivers were dealing with uh, the person losing their limb. So I was looking at all this, all these, and I was like, "Wow, this is really kind of looking at a person as a whole, right? So simplistic, but and it's kind of what we do, but." I, my my mind was really expanding really quickly from one client to the other, and then again one of these other one of these moments that really changed your trajectory of your sort of life and career is I wanted to learn more about individuals with limb loss. I I uh, and there weren't really any OT offered courses for individuals with limb loss, upper or lower extremity that I could find. So there was one course offered by a physical therapist in Miami, and uh, one of my PT partners and I went to this course. It was, and it was, it, it was kind of a one-on-one of treating an individual with limb loss and wound care and skin inspection, pain, and and uh, the other part of it was learning how to use prosthetics and how to do gait training and stuff like that. So that was fine. I was learning all that, and then they started to talk about performing performing ADLs and IADLs, and they were talking about uh, working in the kitchen and kind of performing functional mobility in the kitchen with a prosthesis and performing functional, uh, uh, performing transfers uh, to ba- to the bathroom and getting to the bathroom and and other things like that that were ADL, IADL re- related, donning and doffing a prosthesis as part of your clothing. And I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to see a physical therapist here, and I'm one of maybe two OTs. Yeah, I'm kind of looking for a familiar face, but nobody's really kind of sh- shocked as I am that a lot, of, a lot of the things that were being discussed here were like really sort of within our scope of, of, of working with individuals. And I raised my hand. I said, I, said, um, I have a question, like, the OTs that work with you in the um, in the hospital don't they ever work with your individuals with lower extremity limb loss and work on ADLs and IADLs? He, goes, he said to me, he said to the the class, he goes, I would love for them to, but they only want to work with the upper extremity. Paraphrasing a little bit, but they only want to work with the upper extremity uh, individuals with limb loss. And I oh, thought wow. to myself, you know. This is one one of those like smack your head, uh, put your hand on your head and smack your head and say, oh my God. So now now we're now we're you know again dividing the person from upper body to lower body. Mm-hmm. And I said that can't be, <laughs> you know. Then then we're kind of simplifying what we do as OTs even more. And uh, and yes, you know, there's a lot of things that we do: ADL, IADL, leisure play all the areas of occupation that involve our upper extremities. But there's tons that involve our lower extremities as well. And then sort of the consideration of what's happening as a person as a whole um, 
you know, with their psychosocial, with their cognitive functions, mental functions. So I went back enthusiastic after this course, and I said, okay, I am going to show, and, and I'm going to show people and, 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 and have people uh, appreciate what we do as OTs. And um, with the support of my PT partners, uh, they were able to let me sort of define what OT's role was. And, um, and looking more clo- closely, assessing or screening, what, uh, screening and assessing, I would say, their psychosocial um, uh, concerns, their mental function concerns, and really looking at a person as a whole, take, caring for their care, caregivers, and um, yeah, it was really, um, really a, a moment in time that like sort of propelled me 18 years later to, you know, often known as Michael, the guy that works with with uh, limb loss, with lower limb loss, uh, in in the OT circles sometimes. Right. That's, that is absolutely incredible. And I feel like this theme of advocacy just keeps continuing throughout every story that you have. A hundred percent. We're going to get to it, but I think the other theme that as I was reviewing, you know, our conversation right now and then kind of beforehand preparing, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Cohen uh, she, uh, Dr. Ellen Cohen gave the Eleanor Clark Slagle lectureship last year in 2019 at AOTA, and she talked about being confident and competent. And if you keep those things in mind as students, a lot of things that I've just shared right now and I will share in a bit have to do with building my competence at, you know, in, in sort of how I assess individuals, how I deliver OT services. So that has to do with competence. But confidence to be able to kind of know that there's something that has to be different, knowing that there's more that we could do as OTs, that has to do with your confidence. So when I talk about being respectful but sharing your viewpoint with your fieldwork educator, with your peers, that has to do with confidence. Um, I think sometimes we go the extremes. Either we're too abrasive in our opinions, and it's like, you know, this is how I feel, or we're very kind of quiet and reserved, and we're like, well, yeah, I don't want to rock the boat too much. So, and I think, I think doc, Dr. Cohen, uh, I recommend everybody go and see that um, uh, the the uh, two thousand nineteen Eleanor Clark Slagle lectureship it's it's up on on uh, AOTA but she really t- emphasizes that hope to be competent and confident in your skills uh, is a powerful thing. That's great, Dr. Camacho. Thank you for that. Um, I am, I'm looking at the time, and I think sure. probably a lot of the students are very curious about also this mention of acupuncture <laughs> and how that sure, fits sure, sure. into your background. So if you would kind of expound upon that, that would be great. Sure. So uh, I've always been interested in, the, in, in Eastern 
uh, medicine and philosophy. Uh, I studied martial arts for a bunch of years. Uh, I wanted, when it was time for me to sort of take the next step and uh, go back to school, uh, I wanted to do something that was really sort of different but the same as OT. So the the connection between OT and acupuncture is that um, the person is seen as, as a whole, that everything that happens physically also has an emotional connection to it. Uh, the difference between uh, OT and acupuncture is that it, um, OT is rooted in Western medicine and acupuncture is rooted in Eastern medicine. And that's for another time, another podcast. <laughs> but the, uh, but what really connects them is that everything that happens physical and physiological to a person has to do with an emotional connection. Um, so that's sort of where I decided to go back to school and really learn and sort of build build my sort of my own mental capacity of understanding, of looking at things from a Western philosophy and an Eastern medicine philosophy, but with the intersection that a person is more than just kind of what you see, but um, it's really kind of their experiences and how those experiences shape their emotions and how those sometimes manifest into like physical injury or illness or a disability. Uh, which is, sounds very similar to OT, right? Sometimes right. If, you, if you think about it. Uh, so uh, how I see them sort of interconnect, uh, I'm hoping more and more as we move as a culture into seeing that, you know, it's not, it's beyond just popping a pill uh, or moving a, moving a joint um, that, that we kind of look at various resources available to us to help an individual. So um, as I merge both professions together, I see, you know, acupuncture and OT working as, as, as interprofessionals where, you know, we would work with somebody who does yoga or Tai Chi or, uh, uh, and I think there's certain opportunities where, uh, a professional, an OT, could wear both hats. Um, something like, you know, uh, getting certified in, in, in being a yoga instructor, and you could use that as preparatory methods and techniques, or something like maybe more like acupuncture where you could choose to sort of wear two hats, or you can sort of work with a professional and and utilize the acupuncture as a, preparatory method and technique uh, to support that person's ability to engage, participate, and perform occupations. Um, the one great example that I, I could give is, you know, being able to utilize acupuncture for pain management, but not necessarily sort of what comes to mind right now is, right, what, as, you're, as you're hearing me say these words, you're possibly thinking, Oh, acupuncture to release a, a muscle or a, a fascia or um, a trigger point. And yes, that can be the case, but also to sort of help an individual manage the pain 
through the psychosocial aspect of it, through the use of acupuncture and and sort of having an understanding that there's there's a lot of power to acupuncture that doesn't necessarily uh, it's not just related to the physical aspect of placing a needle onto a fascia or onto a muscle to cause the muscle to relax and release, and that's going to relieve pain. Um, but more so sort of the, the deeper uh, emotional, psychosocial aspect of acupuncture and it, how it could manage pain so that that person feels that pain is managed and they maybe have a sense of self-efficacy that pain is being addressed through them or through collaboration with them and other professionals. And then by, by doing that, they can sort of improve their uh, they they can increase, improve, enhance their ability to engage in occupations. Yeah, it definitely sounds like there's a strong connection between the two. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Camacho, you went and got your bachelor's in OT, then you got another degree in acupuncture, and then you ended up getting a post-professional doctoral degree in OT, is that right? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, I have my bachelor's in science and OT. I have my bachelor's in science and master's in uh, physical medicine acupuncture, basically learning acupuncture from uh, Korean acupuncture, French, French, uh, uh, French-Canadian acupuncture, Chinese acupuncture. Uh, and then I went back to... Uh, uh, last year, uh, no, sorry, I went back in uh, 2017, 2017 mm-hmm. to get my post-professional doctoral degree in OT. And you've been adjunct faculty at Kane University for quite a few years, but now you're you're a full-time professor there. Yeah. So I. Uh, so in 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 the question as far as like. We, when we talked about people that have mentored you. So as you were listening to this podcast, you heard me mention a woman named uh, Dr. Lynn Richards. She, in 2006, uh, 2006 exactly, um, I was going about doing, doing my clinical therapy, OT grind, working in the clinic, and I got a phone call in the, in the clinic while I was working with a couple of clients, and it was uh, Dr. Dr. Richards, Lynn, on the phone, and she said to me, she goes, Mike, uh, I, was in, I was wondering if you were interested in teaching a lab class for uh, adult rehab, uh, things that you, work, you do every day with your clients, transfers and, and uh, dressing skills and vision screens, and come on in and we could talk about it, and I'd like you to kind of be you know be an adjunct uh, uh, instructor, adjunct instructor. Mm-hmm. I said to oh no, Lynn, I, that's not what I do. I I work in the clinic. I don't teach. <laughs> and she said to me, no. She goes, I think I think this would be something that would be would be interesting. Come in, let's talk about it. I went in. I nervously said, okay, I'll do it. I remember. Exactly, exactly. 
waiting for the class to start 30 minutes before the class started in my car parked you know maybe I don't know maybe a five-minute walk to the to the building where the class was going to be held 30 minutes before the class started nervous butterflies if you've ever had butterflies I had the most intense butterflies in my stomach ever thinking oh my god how am I going to do this I remember calling my wife and saying to her I don't know I don't I don't know if I could do this and she said you're fine she goes you know the material right I said yeah I know the material I've been doing it I know it mm-hmm. uh, she goes just go ahead and just tell them what you do tell them exactly what you do I said okay so I went in there uh, not uh, I went in there it's, it's a different building than where the school is now but I went into the building had a great class came out of the class super excited of like the experience like really one of those moments when you feel like addicted and you want just more of the same experience mm-hmm. and I called my wife back up and I said hey this was great I want to do this uh, and then um, yeah, then I ended up doing that for, you know, give or take 13 years as an adjunct instructor, professor. Uh, and then, like I said, I um, in 2017, I said, okay, um, and again, bringing back names, Dr. Paula Kramer um, advised me. She, she goes, you know what you need to do? You like this, right? Uh, I said, yeah, I really love adjunct teaching. Uh, instructing uh, and then another person that I haven't mentioned but Dr. Bolden Lamar Bolden she said you know she had gotten her doctoral degree from NYU I would say maybe 10 years earlier than than when I got it maybe even a little bit more and she goes you keep on talking about this Dr. Bolden says go ahead and do it already and they pinned me down not literally but <laughs> but uh, at <laughs> At, at a new, at a state conference, they were one on the left of me and one on the right of me. It just happened to be that both of them were there. It was 2016, so I went back to school in 2017. And they one to the left of me and one to the right of me. Never one of those situations where these individuals might not necessarily be in the same sort of place at the same time, but they just happened to be the three of us there. And... Um, one of the, I forget who wrote it. I think Dr. Bolden wrote, Dr. Kramer asked me, he's like, so are you going back to school already? What are you thinking? I'm like, I'm thinking about it. And then Dr. Bolden wrote on a piece of paper that I still keep in my office, uh, OTD, um, you know, go for it or something like that. I have it on my, I should remember, but I, I still have the piece of paper. <laughs> and And it was one of those things I'm like, okay. I have to do this. And that's when I, in 2016 is when I really seriously said, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And let me start looking for schools. And in 2017, I was, I was enrolled. And um, that's the story. So what is it like to be a professor at the same school that you got your bachelor's in OT from? You know, honestly, uh, as I've been telling you, it's like full circle. It really is Mm -hmm. full circle for me from that, um, you know that that kid that entered you know that urban minority kid that entered college for the first time you know first generation is you know mom mom you know with a, a training in being nursing but nobody with a 
you know, in my immediate family with a college education at the age of 17 and then finding out about OT when I was 18 and then finally getting into the program when I was 19 and then to be able to now, and then all the lessons that I learned, all the mentors that I've had, all the experiences that, that I've encountered, the students that I've met as a fieldwork educator and then as an adjunct uh, professor teacher, and then to come full circle and be now in the place that it's kind of crazy because if you've caught what I've said, I said Kane College. Well, Kane College now is a Kane University with many colleges. So the, the university has grown, and I've grown, and, uh, and, and now I'm back at the place where it all sort of started, which sounds really cliche, but I've grown, and, and the university has grown, and the program has grown. So the program from a bachelor's in science program is now offering an entry-level doctoral degree, and, and I get to be part of that. I get to be part of sort of the, the next chapter of the university and, 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 and the next chapter of, of sort of my career as OT, and it's, it's kind of a little bit surreal, but it's, it's like it's home, you know. It, it's, it's, mm-hmm. I, I, couldn't, it's, I couldn't ask for it to be any better than to be able to start my next chapter in a, in a university where I started and where, where, where it literally is home. So pretty cool. Well, Dr. Camacho, I can honestly say that I'm so inspired by your story and everything that you had to say today. And I definitely think that the student um, listeners are going to be just as impacted by your story. So thank you so, so much for, for joining us today and, and telling us a little bit about your story. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you uh, Molly. Thank you to the listeners. Uh, Definitely look into working with individuals with limb loss. Uh, it, it will, if you even have a slight interest, it will capture you. Uh, and the, that group of individuals with limb loss uh, is a very special group to me. And I, and I know that uh, those of you that have that interest in working with this population will find as find it as rewarding as I have and will help the help the services that we provide for these individuals continue to grow not only in sort of what we do for that individual in the moment but for the groups in the pop the population that we could continue to advocate for um, be confident as well as being competent don't ask for permission to sit at the table, but just sit at the table and and know that the ordinary things that people see us do every day are pretty extraordinary to the people that we we serve. So that's kind of the amazing thing that we do as OTs, but it's a bit of the kind of like the ah, I wish people kind of knew what we did because we make the extraordinary look ordinary like we just but occupation is so practice occupation thank you so much for your time dr camacho 
Thank you, Molly. Have a good day. Thanks, you too. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you to the student contributors. If you liked it, please subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook at MyOTJourney, and on Instagram at MyOTJourneyPodcast. Thanks for listening. Go OT!